conversion to our Lord Jesus Christ involves turning. It's the most common word used in the scriptures to talk about conversion, it's turning. But what does that turning mean? What does it involve? Does it change anything? Is it merely a mental change, turning from one direction to the other? Does it involve an actual work of our Lord making us into a new person, a new creation? And the battles that continue within us to be that person that Christ wants us to be, wants us to become. All of this isn't on our own power. It's assisted by the graces of the Holy Spirit. All these things we're going to discuss today on Deep in Scripture. Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. Uh, it's always a pleasure to join you, and uh, I want to begin immediately by thanking all of you that send us emails and how much this program has been an encouragement to you. It's not always easy to know who's on the other side of a microphone. Sometimes we just figure we're talking to our family, but we're glad to hear that those that you're out there, that this program makes a difference. Our desire is to through our discussions, help you appreciate the Word of God in this great gift that we've received from God as a part, the wider part of the deposit of faith, how this is intended to draw us closer to Him, to become a deeper part of His body, the church. Now, each week I invite a guest to join me to talk about a verse they never saw. And what I mean by that is a verse, it may have been there right flat before them, in the, but they never recognized its meaning. Or maybe they had a different understanding of the verse than later they recognized, whoa, they had a misunderstanding and now they've discovered the authentic meaning. And often this means discovering the teacher of Scripture, which is the church. The danger of private interpretation can lead us in a lot of different ways. But once we recognize the meaning of Scripture, within the context of the deposit of faith, the sacred tradition, and the teaching of the Magisterium in Union with Peter, then we can recognize and make sure we hear Scripture correctly. That's what this program's been about for a number of years. And so I invite friends to join me, and I'm very privileged today to have as a guest to our program one of my own parish priests, Father Pius Pet. Petrick, Father. I, I, That's why I never give out my last name to anyone, because oh, no one can ever pronounce it. <laughs> I mean, I'm embarrassed. You're my, and I, of course, what do I always call you? Father, Father Pius. Pius that, you know. But, but don't worry, Morgan. I do that I do that deliberately. I always tell people, just call me Father Pius, because the last name is well, too the, many consonants. The problem is you need, you need to buy a few more vowels, okay. as they used to say on the old TV show. That's right. so. Although it's not the Polish pronunciation. My grandfather would be would be rolling if he, under, if he heard the way we were pronouncing it in this English. Well, Father is uh, one of the parish priests at St. Thomas in Zanesville, and it's great to have him here. His bio uh, gives a bit of a background. He was raised in Phoenix, Arizona, far away from Ohio, the cold of Ohio, attended Brophy College, a preparatory school, school in the Jesuit tradition, the Father. Jesuit tradition. I didn't that's realize right. it. That's why, I, that's why I became a Dominican. <laughs> Just kidding. Just graduated kidding. from the University of Arizona with a double major in English and philosophy. From there, he went to law school at the University of Chicago, where he obtained his Juris Doctoral degree. Upon graduation, he worked for three years in the corporate and securities practice of Sidney in Austin, a large international law firm based in Chicago. And before he got caught, he ran away from that. <laughs> 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 oh, upon reflection and discernment, he left the practice of law to enter religious life. He entered the novitiate for the Dominican province of St. Joseph's in 2002, where he took the religious name Pius after Pope St. Pius V, one of the four popes who were the first Dominican. Was he the Pius during the Reformation? Yeah, he was right. He was the one who instituted the new missal and the new catechism towards the end uh, of the of the. He was the century. one that declared Elizabeth. He's the one who, yes, he excommunicated. excommunicated that's right. That's right. Uh, and he also made sure that uh, Bloody Mary received uh, the host. Uh, he made sure that uh, the, the communion was given to her. All right. All right. Very good. We have all kinds of things we can talk about on today's program. Um, as a part of, of Father Pius's initial formation, he studied for the licentiate in sacred theology. His thesis was on St. Thomas Aquinas' account of knowledge and love in understanding the persons of the Trinity. Father Pius was ordained to the priesthood in May 23rd, 2008. Is currently assigned to the parish of St. Thomas Aquinas in Zanesville, Ohio. 
Yeah, and this is new to your bio, right? 2010, you were appointed by President uh, Barack Obama to be a member of the Board of Directors of the Legal Services Corporation. And uh, you might want to talk about that, right? I mean, sure, uh, absolutely. Uh, since it promotes equal access to justice, mm-hmm. it provides grants for high-quality civil legal assistance to low-income Americans. So Even right here in Zanesville. Oh, okay. Well, I'll apply. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's great to have Father Pius uh, here joining us. Um, again, the, the usual for this program is to invite the guest to uh, choose a scripture they never saw. And I asked Father if he would do that. And he chose, and would you say this verse was a part of your ordination? Normally it's customary for those be, of us being ordained, at least in our province, and I think a lot of places too, is that you have a little holy card printed, mostly so people can take right. it home as a, as a token, but also as I always put on, as I put on mine, please pray for me. So if they keep <laughs> it in their, in their breviary of their Bible and they pull it out, they can remember to pray for me and, and my ministry and typically the custom is you have a, a passage from scripture on there and the passage that that i gave you is the passage that i put on there and it's a passage that is just always when i first read it was just overcome by it um have a great fondness for it right. um, and it's become a, a you know, central theme in my own relationship with the lord what i'll do is i'll read this then we'll take a break and then we'll come back father to start our discussion on it this passage is from second corinthians Chapter 3, verse 15 through 18, particularly verse 17 is the the, the key central verse. Let me read this. We'll take a break, and we'll come back and look at this passage. This is Paul writing. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when a man turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Do not forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 o'clock Eastern Time. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journeys Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Well, welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Father Pius. There we go. There we go. <laughs> and he's the, the priest from our local uh, Dominican. Just a priest, Marcus. Not the priest. Oh, just a priest. I forgot there's a hierarchy, <laughs> right? That's right. One of the priests. Of course. You know, Father Jordan and Father Luke. Um, oh, Father Luke. I, I, he's one of the, I love Father Luke because I, I, most of the people in the congregation haven't a clue of his background. Oh, no. Uh, a good number of do. Father Father Luke is uh, the senior priest uh, by age and religion in our little community, Dominican community. He's uh, eighty nine and a half. He'll be ninety. He's still going strong. Still, you know, works full time, as we say. Re- uh, Dominican priests never retire. Um, and <laughs> but he spent forty six years as a missionary in yes. Pakistan. Uh, uh, it's incredible stories. Uh, about his life there and uh, the difficulty of life, but the joys of his life out there. And, and a doctor. Yeah, he right. That's why he has the name Luke. You know, 
he he was um, he wanted actually to be a fighter pilot in World War II, but his eyes were too bad. So uh, he decided instead to go to medical school. And the military sent him to, it wasn't Case Western at the time, because the two hadn't joined, it was right. Western. So he went to Western Reserve right here in Ohio. That's where I went. <laughs> oh, did you? I didn't know. Yeah. Um, but he Case. went to Western, <laughs> yeah, well, he went to the Western side. He went to Western Reserve. He's from uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, became a doctor, and then the military sent him to Japan. And so he spent, t- I think, two years in Japan, um, it was after everything was done, so you know he mm-hmm. never saw any combat. He didn't treat anybody with combat wounds. Uh, as I as as I joke with him, he, all, the only thing he did is patch up drunken sailors who got to come back. <laughs> but um, after his time there, he he really found a, a, a desire to enter in religious life, and he he wrote to the Dominicans. It really just kind of a little out of the blue, and then he was a priest for a year. And the order was beginning a new mission to Pakistan after the communists had closed our mission to China, uh, imprisoned some of our men there, and kicked us out generally. Uh, we, that happens to a lot of our missions. We get, <laughs> bad government comes in, we Dominicans get kicked out. Uh, but then, so he uh, volunteered after a year of being a priest to go out to Pakistan. He was out there for 46 years. Uh, really an amazing amazing man and a great you know I'm I'm fairly young in my priesthood only a few years but to be assigned with a man like Father Luke yeah, a priest like Father Luke who has just such wisdom and such experience uh, you know a priest that I could only aspire to be like well it's understandable the Dominicans would get kicked out of places because the, <laughs> the Franciscans their model was uh, evangelize always and if necessary use words Dominicans always use, use words, words. <laughs> <laughs> that's right well, the, the Dominicans don't usually use that line from St. Francis <laughs> well it's great to have you Father Pius in fact you remind me we should have Father Luke join us sometime you should that absolutely really should he's, if you can get if you can draw him out to tell some of his stories um, he'd get mad at me if I told some of them but some of them are really <laughs> really, really quite amazing. But when he was, I was going to say this before, but so when he entered the novitiate, his, his baptismal name was Lewis. So he entered the novitiate, um, and back then you got a religious name whether you wanted one or not. And so his novice master said, oh, you're a physician. Luke it is, because Luke is a patron saint right. of, of physicians. So that's how, he got, that's how he got the name, and he's stuck with it ever since. Well, the, the triumvirate of you and Father Jordan and Father Luke preaching at our St. Thomas Parish, uh, we always know we're getting the gospel preached. Oh, thank so you we, 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 we cherish that. As, and, I, as I say to everyone else, it's the Holy Spirit doing the work. I just open my mouth and hope something good comes out. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, there's a number of passages, of course, that we could have chosen for our discussion. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, the idea is a verse you never saw. And when I mentioned that, immediately you thought about this. Yeah. Now, in what way, before we jump into the real study of it, in what way was this a verse you never saw? Well, it's because I really had, I, I think I was, I don't remember when I first, I'm sure I've heard of it before, because right. we read it in the lectionary, and I think there was well, well, just a particular day, uh, not too long before my ordination, I think, probably within the, a year or two, within the year or two before my ordination, that for some reason I heard this passage and went, that's, a, that's absolutely right, that's it. Um, this idea of a freedom within the spirit, um, which I must have heard, you know, quite a number of times, you know, hearing the lectionary, because um, it was a weekday reading, and it was that's only the two-year cycle. Um, that 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 time I heard it, it really just struck a chord with me. Um, studying St. Thomas probably helped a little bit. Uh, having studied St. Thomas helped get you more tuned to certain sure. passages. But I don't remember him ever using this this line. He probably does, but I don't remember specifically seeing this right. use of scriptures. But that's where I first heard it was in, in the Mass. Well, one thing that I've always emphasized on this program, because I come from a different background, mm-hmm. you know, Lutheran upbringing and then later, Presbyterian training and, and uh, ordination is when we study scripture, we want to make sure that we look at all the layers of context. We don't just, you know, I know you're not in danger of doing that, but for our audience, we never take a passage out of the context of its paragraph, out of its book, out of the, the testament, out of the entire scripture, out of the sacred deposit of the teaching of the church, how it fits into the rule of faith. And so when we look at this passage from Second Corinthians, um, you know, even Second Corinthians, in a sense, the book itself is a bit of a mystery. At what point in the in the stages of Paul was written? There are a few scholars around that even doubt whether he did it, but I, I, I think they were wrong. But when we look at the context in just this section here. Of course, Paul is. Oh, he's caught up with trying to vindicate himself 
because there are those that are challenging his own authority. Right. Who are you, Paul? Right. Especially because he comes, in a sense, outside of the authority of the apostles in Jerusalem, um, or he doesn't come, or doesn't spring up quite from among them. Uh, so, Paul, what gives you the authority to, to do this? Yeah, in, in the Corinth, a church always had this problem of factions. Mm-hmm. We get that in First mm-hmm. Corinthians. Mm-hmm. We've got those that are caught up enthusiasm. Fortunately, we don't have that problem with factions in today's modern Exactly church. right. Those long <laughs> since, only in the problem of the early <laughs> days the of the early church. Um, but, you know, the issue of factions in which you have different leaders in the church within the local parish, mm-hmm. even. I know you, Father, and, and the local St. Thomas, I know there's no problems with That's that right. whatsoever. Perfect, perfect unity. And but also the issue of in that church you have the enthusiasts mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that are taking the, the freedom of the spirit too far. Right, right. They, they mean it as kind of license, and Paul talks about this. Uh, as I'll, I'll, I'll say what what Augustine always says. Somewhere in Scripture it says. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere in St. Paul it says. Uh, I did not have the Protestant upbringing, so I don't know my Bible, my Bible and my chapter and verse so well. But he talks about this a lot. You take this idea of freedom, right? That we're not we're not tied to the letter of the law anymore. And some people have taken it to mean that means we can do whatever I want, what we want, especially what kind of different sort of licenses of the flesh, as it were. Um, and Paul says, no, 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 no. You're misunderstanding what that means. You're very much understanding what true freedom means. It isn't the freedom of the flesh, right? It's the freedom of the spirit. It's the freedom to be, to follow the spirit, to be united with the spirit. That's really Paul's sense. And in this context, too, I think it's probably in some ways against some of the Judaizers as well. Mm-hmm. Paul making a, a great distinction between uh, the Mosaic log, which was which saw the spirit with a kind of veil um, and the ability to see more clearly um, that you, you have with Christ because of the Spirit. When he begins in verse 15, then, this is, his audience would know exactly what he's talking mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. but our modern audience may oh. not. It's funny, I, you know, I think, I assume that everyone would know about this was as well, because yeah. I have such the background of, right. of, of knowing the Scripture so much, but you're right, it's to, probably helpful so to explain. He begins, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. Right. Or, or in the New American translation, over their hearts. Um, the um, the well, idea that has hearts. Yeah, the, the New American has, has hearts, interestingly enough. Yeah, interesting. Um, the idea, of course, is what Moses, if you remember your Old Testament, uh, Moses receives, uh, speaks to God, um, um, and he comes down and back to the people, and of course, he, he's affected by being in the presence of God, and that is to say, then, his his very skin has a kind of radiance to it, and so his presence with God is actually too much for them to be able to take. So what does Moses have to do? He has to veil his face so that the brilliance of God that is shining forth through him, they, they are, they're not ready for. And so it has to be veiled from their eyes. Paul, as Paul does wonderfully so often, he takes that idea and he kind of changes it a little bit so that that veil is not over Moses' face anymore, but it's over their hearts, um, especially when it comes to not, to not Moses in this case, but according to the scriptures themselves, because for Paul, who are the scriptures referring to? It's Christ, of course. Um, so the veil is, if Christ doesn't have the veil over him, especially since the veil is ripped open, the veil of the, the, the temple is ripped open, as you see in the Gospels. But the veil then is over their heart, so that they're unable to see, in a sense, Christ in the scriptures. Let's push this idea for today, mm-hmm. because if the veil means a bit like seeing things through your own glasses, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sunglasses, tinted glasses, right? Rose-colored glasses. Then today we have people with different veils over their hearts and minds that prevent them from fully turning in the way of Christ. Absolutely, absolutely. From a variety of different sources, many who don't realize it. Take, for example, uh, I mean, when you talk about hermeneutics, right? Everyone, and the truth of the matter is, everyone has a sort of hermeneutic to them. Uh, hermeneutic being a, a kind of a key, as it were, or a, an approach mm-hmm. to looking at the scriptures and understanding the scriptures. For the, the Catholic Church, the primary hermeneutic is the a sort of continuity with the, the long term, the traditions of the church um, and the, the teaching authority of the church. You know, this is. M- 
many ways the way we look at it. But even Protestants who would cl- claim that they don't have a hermeneutic, of course they do have yeah. a hermeneutic. Um, they have, I was reading an article the other day about the fathers of the church. This was Cardinal Ratzinger, or Pope Benedict, in one of his books was talking about the fathers of the church and the fact that the Protestants have their own fathers <laughs> of their own church. And that would be people like Lutheran or, or Calvin. These are the fathers of the Protestant church and they read the scriptures through these particular fathers, through this particular hermeneutic. And for them, then this becomes the veil, right? If it's yep. if it's not through this particular veil, if they don't see the scriptures through the veil of, of Luther or Calvin or some of the, the people who follow them, um, then they don't see it at all. Um, and the so it's 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 important to see that as well. It's it, it's in this passage, um, it, it is really key. And, and the reason I wanted to push us on this a little bit, Father, is because many of, of the audience may come from a, a background where I do something like the Westminster Confession, which is the foundation for most modern Presbyterianism, mm-hmm. emphasizes that the way you interpret Scripture is you you use scripture to interpret scripture. Right. If you got a hard passage, we find another passage to interpret that passage. So you're choosing more well-known passages. That becomes your veil in a way. And what happens within Protestantism is a theology or a scripture becomes the key to interpret everything else. So, for example, the emphasis of the sovereignty of God amongst Calvinists the trajectory right. is pretty soon man has no free will whatsoever because of the sovereignty of God. Or, if you emphasize the mercy of God is more important than anything, the trajectory of that has become universalism. God is so merciful he would never condemn anyone. Or if your veil is the love of God, pretty soon you don't never talk about the fear of God or the justice of God, right? Or the justice of God. Right. That's that's. What a friend of mine used to say we have divine mercy Sunday. We should have divine justice Sunday as well, just to make up for it. <laughs> but right, and that's the idea. It's it's and it's an important Catholic notion that's that governs that helps us because of our philosophy. We understand God, and God is a kind of infinite quality uh, not kind of God's has God has no parts to him God is fully just God is fully loving and these all are God himself and God is his own justice God is his own love God is his own truth um, and so for us as Catholics uh, you know we've I'm sure you've heard this phrase before it's not it's not an either or uh, it's on either or it's both and um, so that we we have to be able to see these things together in God to understand both his mercy and his justice that these two things aren't opposed to each other, but they, these are complementary to each other. Uh, God's, God has both of these. Um, so so we have to, there is no one key. There's no one taking of an aspect of the faith and and exalting that over everything. There is no taking one attribute of God and exalting that attribute over everything. There is simply the, the one God in three persons. Well, a good example of that is, let's take the doctrine of the Trinity, where that's what the early council did when the bishops gathered to to work through all the different keys that people were using to right. try and describe the the different traditions that had come down which is the right one and so they ended up with the the uh, the three persons one god making sure they understood or the distinction of the divinity of Christ and his his personhood when there were a lot of other views out there oh, yeah. and isn't just someone had the right verse to decide and this was, was the authority of the church right and this was a question about exactly that especially about um, the nature of Christ and the nature of God um, the, the extent to which you, you wanted to uh, focus on God's divinity or Christ's humanity um, and the union between the two how which things did you focus on and the church saw the truth in in balancing all these different things together and understood the way in which you balanced all these things together. Christ isn't isn't either fully human or fully divine. He is both fully human and fully divine. And how do we understand that? Well, we understand that with the concept of personhood, that he is, he, while he has a human nature, is a divine person that also has a divine nature as well. Um, and it obviously took centuries for the church to be able to formulate this in an intelligible way. Um, this was never as if the church was inventing the faith, but what the church was doing was coming up with the ways to explain how all these different traditions that have come authentically from the life of the church can be balanced together. And in a way, it was dealing with the veils of culture, 
the yeah. veils of the baggage we bring with us on the journey, the, some of which we've picked up along the way that we don't even know we picked up an idea, but it influences our thinking. The, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, Father, we're going to look at verse 16. We'll slowly get to verse 17, which is what <laughs> you want to focus on. But I want to make sure we look at the context, because to me, one of the beauties of verse 16 is that it emphasized that the way that we free ourselves from the veil is not just we get more educated. Right. It's a work of grace. Absolutely. And we'll look at that when we come back from the break. Thank you for listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grota. I'm joined today by Father Pius, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. Follow the compelling journey of one man who became a Church of Christ minister and found himself entering the Catholic Church. Bruce Sullivan shares his conversion story in his new book titled Christ in His Fullness. In this book, he communicates a passionate love for Christ and the inexhaustible treasures of grace found in the Catholic Church. Perhaps you, too, will discover the same riches in the fullness of Christ. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Father Pius Petrick. Gold star, Marcus. Gold star. <laughs> a million of those Every gold stars Sunday, you get to have. I'm going to call you Father Petrick rather than Father <laughs> Pius. But um, I know you want to get to verse 17, but I have to land with both feet on verse 16 because there's so much in verse 16. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he begins in verse 15, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses has read, a veil lies over their minds. So he's talking about this baggage that people have that stands in the way of fully hearing God, but fully turning to God. But then he says in verse 16, but when a man turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about that because we're talking about conversion. Right. When a man turns to the Lord. Now, remember, in, the, in, especially in classical understandings of Christianity, conversion is always a two-way street. It's always a turn towards and a turning away from something at the same time. Life and death at the same time. But it reminds me of the foundation of the Dominican order. Mm-hmm. Isn't that old? What's that old joke about the difference between the Dominicans and the Jesuits? How does that go? But, the, why, was the, <laughs> why was the Jesuit order founded? To combat the Protestant heresies. Why was the Dominican order founded? To combat the Albigensian heresy. When's the last time you met an Albigensian? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But it deals with conversion. Yeah. The, the, the purpose of Dominican order, St. Dominic was sent to deal with a certain group of, of folk that had twisted the Catholic faith. Uh, they had dropped a new veil into their life. Right. They were seeing things through radically wrong ways. And I forget which order tried to convert them in the first place, but they weren't very successful. Assertions, right? But but the point was that Saint Dominic saw that for them to be able to see, he had to go to them with simplicity and humility, right? And, and especially his poverty, yes. Right. He had to he had to come to them at their level um, and help them to understand at that level. While that's the problem, you know, all of these heresies for some point or all these errors are usually focused on some good, some aspect, like God's sovereignty is a wonderful thing. But when you take that good and you kind of twist it out of its context, and if it becomes, as you say, the veil through which you see everything, mm-hmm. then you're going to get a lot of things wrong. And that the, the Albigensians took um, some aspects of Paul that were wonderful um, and that were right. Paul talks very much about the evils of the flesh and the the glories of the spirit. Well, they took that and went way too far. They took the evils of the flesh, and that became the veil, um, so that everything was was so. So, starting a family, you know, a man and a woman coming together to start a family, that was evil. Um, eating oftentimes became evil because it preserved the body. Um, these then 
led to horribly distorted things. But then to, to take the poverty that they lived, which was a beautiful way to express uh, a, a desire to live more closely with the spirit, and then to, to merge the goodness of the body with the goodness of the spirit. Father, verse 16 is an amazing verse. Uh, the, 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 I mean, we could spend hours and hours, I think, talking about the, the meaning of that. And I think theologians have done that over the century. It says, but when a man turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Talk about what it means for a man to turn to the Lord and have the veil removed. And what's the bigger right. concept of conversion? You see this, I was talking, uh, thinking about it, and you see this a lot, especially first in ancient baptismal imagery. In the early church, of course, those were adults who were baptized for the most part. Um, they come to the faith, and you you have these two primary uh, themes that run through the, the baptismal discourses of the fathers and even the liturgical symbolism is one is conversion, converts, conversio. And what's that symbolized by especially is in the baptismal, uh, the, the sacrament of baptism, the person who's baptized first what? Reject Satan. Do you reject Satan and all his glamours, all that sort of thing? And then that, that right after that, then it's the Apostles' Creed. I, so you've got right there a conversion, uh, turning away from the devil and turning towards the Lord. And sometimes that was actually physically done. The person would actually turn physically mm. uh, and reject the, the Satan by one direction and then accept the Lord in turning the other direction, a physical con conversio. Um, and at the same time, the image of the flame, which is the, the image of the candle, uh, often the Paschal candle, but we give it today even the, the little baptismal candle, the symbol of enlightenment. And that is the idea is it comes from the Paschal candle, that is it's the enlightenment given by Christ. And that in baptism and in grace, then we are able able then to see in a way that we couldn't see before by turning to Christ, who is the light, the image of the apocalypse of the New Jerusalem, right? Is there a sun in the New Jerusalem? No. Why? Because it's God who gives the light. To see not with the light of our human eyes, but then to begin to see the world, all of creation, uh, with the light that Christ himself gives, which is possible only when you turn to that light, when you turn to the away from the darkness of sin and the darkness of, of, of Satan, and turn towards the light. You'd be able to see things more. But this isn't a one-time-and-for-all event, right? Conversion, conversio, is only a beginning. It's a, it's a theme that recurs throughout the life as a Christian. The Christian life is always a conversion. It's one of the reasons why we need the sacrament of penance, right? Because we're constantly turning back towards the darkness, and we need then not just our our decision, but we need grace given to us through the church, then to also then turn our turn be be turned back to the Lord. From especially from a Dominican perspective, it's not it's not a question of does the Lord do the work or do I do the work? The answer is yes, right? It's the Lord does the work and I do the work. The both of us working together. Someone and describing faith, a Dominican priest describing faith to me said, when some people, they think of it this way, said, I'm sort of rowing a boat, and then God is there to kind of help me along a little bit, right, to help me row a little bit faster. But really what it's about is, is that I'm kind of sitting in God's lap, and God's hands are over my hands as we're kind of rowing the boat together. So God is using his effort, which is much better than mine, frankly, and but but my effort is in there as well. And it But it's only done that way, united with God, so that we're kind of moving moving forward together. And that's the same idea of conversion. Um, it's my decision, absolutely, but it's also God's decision. It's my work, absolutely, but it's also God's work. And what God's work is, especially, is in lifting that veil and able to see more and more with God's own light. Hear that phrase, when a man turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Again, depending on what veil you have on is right. how you can interpret that. Right. But the, the beauty of that this removing of the blindnesses, it's interesting, the removing of blindness so that we can see the light of Christ is a partnership between our will responding right. what we know in our intellect, but at the same time it's the presence of the divine life within us drawing us to God. And um, this is an interesting verse for us to talk about today on the Wednesday after Christmas in the middle, remember the beginning of Christmas season, but it's also kind of between Christmas and New Year's, the secular day of starting over resolutions. Right. I'm going to be different. I'm going to turn. Okay. And, and it's an interesting time. Well, let's say our audience is out there and, 
and Christmas Day came and went very fast. Yeah. Right? The packages have been opened. There's everything. And now here's life again. And am I any different after the coming of my Savior? And I've, I, I can press onward now. Paul says, Freddie Gamble lies behind. I press onward. How does a person turn? You know, how does, I've, what about the person that says, I've turned 50, 100, 150 times before, and the veil's still there? Well, you know, the, 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 Paul talks in another passage, which I think is very important, is, is now we see God darkly as though through a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. In a certain sense, because of the light of, because we see God now only through the light of grace. And so that's still, in a sense, a type of veil that we will always be st- stuck with, at least in this world. In the next life, of course, we see God not with the light of grace, but the light of glory. It's a different light. It's a, the light of God that is not through any mirror. Medium. It's the it's the it's the uh, it's the light of God itself directly into our intellects, rather than, than the the light of grace. So that we always have to keep that in mind um, that we do not yet see with the light of glory, only with the the light of grace. That, but that that's not nothing. <laughs> the light of grace isn't nothing. It's not everything, but it's not nothing either. Um, but it does allow us to see it. And what does it mean to do it? You know, we, we, we have a tendency, I think, in the modern church to see, or the modern Christian life, is to think in a kind of moralism, right? That we think only in, in actions. And they're important, um, but the, the primary thing is to see that is is that conversion itself is that my 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 whole self now needs to be oriented towards God, um, not in just one or two little things, but in that everything is meant. Everything that I do then springs from this desire to do God's will. This springs from this desire that I have to be united with Christ. That's that's I think the proper way to look at them. Something like sin. What sin? Sin is just those things in my life that turn me from God. Um, and not just because I think they turned me from God. It's because God has created us in a certain way and, and has for us a certain orientation. So these are the things that separate us from God. That's why we turn away from sin, because these are the things that keep us from him. Um, and to, to realize is that we know we need the grace to constantly keep going forward keep on going. that. You know, Father, um, I think it was five or six years after I entered the church and I've learned through my own experience that conversion to the Catholic faith doesn't merely happen after that one-day reception. Right. It's a long process. That's why, for example, the RCIA program in the church, which generally takes a year uh, or it, so. It, you're lucky if you get a whole year. It's usually about nine months. Nine months, yeah. but it's not supposed to end on Easter. There's right. a thing called mystagogy. It's supposed to keep you going because now, but one of the most profound statements that I was confronted with in my journey, again, now six years in the turning process after a Catholic being a Catholic six years, was a statement that I read from a Dominican, mm-hmm. Father Gary Goulagrange, mm-hmm. teacher of John Paul, when he said, and I think he was quoting another spiritual writer when he said, in the ways of God, he who does not progress loses ground. Right. That is profound because you're talking about this turning process that's a long life, but we never arrive at a quantum level and then can sit back and rest. And the reason for that is God is infinite, right? There's no, there's no going too deep in the love of God. That you know, Saint Thomas used to say about the virtues: there's always a defect in the excess and the defect in not having enough of it. Well, with the love of God, there is no excess in the you know the defect in the excess. You can never love God too much. Um, There's always a sense of being drawn in deeper and deeper to God. And I've I've said this before in my homilies, if you if you if you should be looking every day is is am I doing something that's bringing me closer to God today? Am I closer to God today than I was yesterday? And I think you're right. Some some of the veils that we have sometimes, especially I think as Catholics, is that we get into a kind of rut. The, I'll tell you the, the the phrase I hate the most is, well, when I was in eighth grade, and this is from like a fifty year old. Well, when this I was in eighth grade, well, in eighth grade we taught you like an eighth grader, right? You're not in eighth grade anymore. And when you think your education ends at when you 
graduate high school or when you finish with the CTCD program or when you're confirmed, if that's as far as your religious education goes, then you've got this veil of a great veil of ignorance that's in the way um, and that you need to keep doing it. And I'm, I don't mean to be saying that the church is a kind of rationalistic, is that we find faith by knowing more, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the only way to achieve faith is to receive, is to read all of the Summa Theologica of St. Thomas, Although it won't hurt, <laughs> um, but the idea is is that we have to we should appreciate our faith more and more, and we should have a more and more mature understanding of our faith, so that we have a more and more mature love of God. We're going to take another break, Father, and when we come back, we're going to look at that passage you want finally, to do in the first finally, place. Marcus. <laughs> I thought I'd have to do a whole other radio show for us to get well, to that passage. We'll probably have to, have to finish it. All right, let's take a break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Father Pius Petrick, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Father Pius Petrick, and he's uh, one of the parish priests at our local Dominican parish here in Zanesville, Ohio. And uh, Father, the, the the scripture that you wanted us to look at that I've been, because <laughs> there's so much good theology in, in these passages anyway. I mean, that's Beautiful what stuff. I love. Is verse 17, 2 Corinthians three seventeen. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now this was the one that you said you never saw before, or yeah. that was fairly new to you. Well, I, I grew up, as you read in my bio, I, I was a lawyer, uh, wanted for a long time to be a lawyer, decided early in high school that I would be a lawyer, thought about the priesthood a little bit, but wanted to be a lawyer. And part of it was I'm, I was always fascinated with America, the American ideal, the American form of governance, and the idea of we enshrine our liberty in the law, uh, that, that freedom is a, a great centerpiece of what it means to be American and the aspiration of freedom very much defines who we are as Americans. But like so many people, of course, I saw freedom as a kind of the way, you know, what Paul argues against. Freedom means license. Freedom means a kind of self-determine. I determine my own being, as it were, and decide for myself what it means to be free. And to read then in St. Paul that what real freedom is, is to find the one who gives us life, to find the one who is the answer for everything. Everything. It's only the spirit that can give us freedom. It's why and why it's because the, the it's the spirit who lifts these veils that prevent us from truly seeing reality as it as it is. Uh, God is the ultimate source of goodness. We all have these little veils in our own life. Um, sometimes it's just the veil of sinfulness that distorts us. Sometimes it's the veil of a wrong philosophy or a wrong way of interpreting scriptures. But we all have a veil that needs to be lifted by the Holy Spirit. And once that can be done, then we can start really living freedom because then we can see reality for what it is. Well, if anything, we do live in an age where the misunderstanding of freedom has become a very thick veil that causes problems. And it's interesting you you said that you you were given your name Pius, yes. your religious name after Pius the Fifth. Fifth. It's interesting that Pius the Sixth, who, if I remember correctly, was the Pope during the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. It released an encyclical warning about the dangers of freedom. Right. The a mis- danger- and a misunderstood freedom, especially. Yeah, warning about the danger of these freedoms that were coming out of this enlightenment movement of the 18th century that are now rampant in the undergirding of almost everything that runs our world, our country. These, these freedoms that are, are pushed too far, the rights, 
my right versus your right and the freedom for that. And I, I think it was uh, both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, neither of whom uh, one would say had a, a very clear understanding of the Christian faith. <laughs> exactly right. Neither of them w- were... We're, op- we're trying to make America a Christian nation, yet both of them said that the only way our democracy and the freedoms of democracy can survive is if the populace are moral and religious. Right, right. There was a common set of ideals or sort of transcendent moral order that was common to all Americans that would as- allow us to transcend our own petty desires uh, for the greater common good uh, so that we could have a well-ordered and well-structured society. That has been replaced by, of course, rampant individualism, where everything has been devolved down to whatever it is that I want to pursue so long that it doesn't cause economic or physical harm to someone else. That's essentially the view of freedom in, in, in the world. But it has no sense of what it does is it divorces man from his nature. Right. Man is, isn't just anything. He's something. He is a man with a human nature. So that man's perfection is found in, or man's best good is found in that perfection of that nature. Um, and to understand then his, his own freedom can only be understood in relation to what it means for him to be a, a man, for him to be a human person. Um, and that's an important thing to realize. Something that I'd like you to talk about for just a moment, Father, and that is the danger of this freedom in america it's the soup we live in in the sense that we're often blind to how we are influenced by the soup of that narcissistic freedom in our culture and what i want to get to is again the danger of private interpretation of of scripture because you may be completely blind to how you're influenced by the soup of the the wrong understanding of freedom in our culture and a good example of that are people that, you know, the voices of their flesh are telling them to live a lifestyle that's immoral, but they believe, but that's me. Right. That's who I am. Right. And this idea that, that well, God created me this way. Well, yes and no, right? Uh, we are all the creatures of a fallen nature, that we have a broken and disrupted nature. If we didn't... Right. If we could, and if we could trust everything that our feelings and desires gave to us, then we wouldn't need a savior, would we? No. We have a broken nature, and beyond that, of course, is, is not only that, but our our nature. If if you understood nature simply as the the all of my my desires, which are often just fleshly desires, then we are no greater than our flesh, which is our bodies. But it. It forgets that the true reality of who we are is the spirit, right? If Marcus Grodi, if I look at Mark, if I remove your leg, right, you're still Marcus Grodi. If I remove both your legs, you're still Marcus Grodi. Why? Because the reality of who you are is not so much physical, although it's an important part of it, but it's very much spiritual. The, your identity, your personhood is much more in your spirit than it is simply in your body. And so much of modern society refuses to see that the nature of that spirit, it, div- it divorces it completely from the body, divorces it completely from our nature, and makes it simply man's own quest to satisfy his usually fleshly desires. And that's where we go wrong. And and we go wrong, too, even in the Catholic world, with regards to man's own quest for his desires. I say this, this is the example I give. I said, how many people, if you see little kids, everybody asks us, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? It's a great question. We always ask it. But we never ask the question, what does God want you to be when you grow up? Why as Catholics do we never ask the question, what does God want you to be when we grow up? The reason is we don't think about it. We don't think that God has a plan for us, and we must. God does have a plan for us. And unless we start thinking about it explicitly and ask God to remove the veils from our minds so we can see his will, then we'll never be happy because we'll never know that plan that he has for us. Yeah, I've, I'm not sure this is philosophically sound. I've got a Dominican with me, so you can straighten me out, Father. But <laughs> I'll do my best. I, but this, this beauty of, of we as people, person's body and soul right. not a soul trapped in a body right. and the more gnostic view but I, there is a lot of protestants that get caught up in that and it's it's like an ex, an experiment i 
I've recommended if you want to meditate on the the beauty of who we are as both spirit and body is when you get up in the morning and you're you're sitting there with your robe and you're drinking your first cup of coffee right and your bare toes are sticking out there look at your toe and then realize that if you think for it to move it moves instantaneously you can't you can't describe that biologically how that message instantaneously the thought makes your toe move yeah it's the combination of soul and body together yeah so much no it's not it, right it's part of you it's not even as if like it's a computer like you type in a command and then the, it's sent off and then the switches go no it's who you are it's right the, the mystery of the whole person but yet the purpose of fasting is we have to discipline part of us right so the other part of us can shine right and that's because of our fallen human nature that so often and as paul points is out the flesh and the spirit are at war with each other um that one of the effects of our fallen nature is that we are not integrated anymore we are not united anymore our spirits and our bodies are not as united as they should be and most modern society simply rejects that Right? It doesn't see fallen human nature as a particular problem at all. Um, but we do. We see that man is called to higher things. That's part of the revelation of Christ. Christ reveals to us what man and his perfection ought to be like um, and that we should aspire to that. But yeah, that's right. And verse 18, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Right. Again, the work of his grace in that constant turning in his direction, the process. Right, right. And we don't receive, you know, we don't receive grace all at once. We just get one, our little one dose of grace, and that's it. But we sh- should look for grace upon grace, glory upon glory, a deepening and deepening into grace, grace leading into a deepening and deepening of glory. Well, on this particular Wednesday in the beginning of Christmas season, Father, we need to keep turning. How about a prayer and a blessing as we close our program today? Sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Almighty and powerful God, you have sent to us your only Son. He is your face shining forth to us, a face that smiles upon us with grace. And in that body of Jesus Christ is your voice, your word, which speaks to us continually today in our own time, in the church and in scriptures. Help us to listen more deeply to the word that is spoken to us, so that we may, by hearing it, be turned towards that voice, drawing deeper and deeper into the love that you have for us, so that we may enter into your glory, glory upon glory, grace upon grace. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Father Pius, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's a great pleasure for me to be here. Great pleasure. I feel like we just scratched the surface. There's so much we could keep talking about. So we'll definitely have you back sometime. I know you have a busy schedule down there at the church, but uh, thank you very much for your Dominican witness, both on the program as well as from the pulpit at St. Thomas. Glad to be here. Thank you. And thank all of you for joining us on this program. I hope it's been an encouragement to you. We are to continue to turn. And as this passage points out it's the work of the spirit but we have to cooperate it's the combination of of our walking with god asking him though to remove the veils all the veils in our life that prevent us from seeing him clearly discovering his love and discovering how he wants us to grow to be like him by his grace god bless you see you again next week